this is a conversation with Ian McGilchrist. Hi, Ian. Hello, hi. So, uh, Ian, you have uh, given a lot of thought to what it's like to be human. Yes, uh, my career took me around a number of different interesting areas from that point of view. I originally went to Oxford to study philosophy and theology, but I ended up studying English literature, which, of course, is in many ways the study of human beings, their minds and their feelings, uh, and ended up uh, studying medicine and becoming a psychiatrist with an interest in neuroscience, which is another way of looking at uh, human beings and, and uh, their, their feelings and their communication. And um, I suppose they could be considered fairly contrasting. I certainly have found it interesting the different cultures um, in the humanities and in the sciences. And I think it's been a great help to me that I didn't even begin to study medicine until I was about 30 and uh, had already a background in, in philosophy and literature. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, one of the things that led me to medicine was a, a dissatisfaction with uh, a certain way of thinking about ourselves and, and art. In fact, uh, art, of course, is not very unlike human beings. Uh, art works are more actually like people than they're like things, a point which Aristotle first made. Uh, but, of course, in, in academe, one starts taking uh, an analytic approach to, say, a poem and is then surprised to find that it doesn't yield anything very like what it was that moved you or seemed important to you in the first place. And uh, one of the one of the difficulties I thought there was that people thought of poems as rather disembodied, and as though they affected us as disembodied brains and consciousnesses interested in ideas, principally. Whereas it seems to me that a poem or any work of art, a piece of music or a sculpture or whatever, a painting is an embodied, incarnate thing which can't be paraphrased or. Um, turned into something virtual, it just actually is exactly what it is and nothing else, and that it has an effect on us as embodied beings. So embodiment as an important part of what a human being is uh, was really the, 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 key, that, uh, the key, key thing in, in my study of the arts that made me want to study medicine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so a sense of, in a way, uh, strangely enough, that studying the arts led to a way of focusing on the arts uh, in a way that deprived them of what it is that give them their vibrancy and their aliveness uh, and uh, turning them into disembodied stuff. Yes, yes. I, I, there's um, a great English poet called Ted Hughes who... Uh, studied English at Cambridge, and he, he after two years, he he had a dream in which a fox came to him in the night, came into his room and put its bloody charred paw on his essay that he was writing, and said, "Why are you killing us?" <laughs> and uh, I had a, a sort of similar feeling about this, and wrote a book, in fact, called Against Criticism, which was about what the problem with that was. And uh, as I say, it seemed to me to have something to do with. Um, turning something that was unique in the incarnate and entirely individual into something general and abstract. 
and that led me to look at the mind-body problem, and the trouble was the philosophers were all too disembodied in their approach, and I thought the thing to do is to go and look at this from a more embodied point of view, which of course meant studying medicine and seeing uh, near to first hand as one can what happens when something goes wrong with somebody's brain or their body and it affects their mind, or something goes wrong with their mind and it affects their their body. So um, that is that is how I ended up being a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, obviously we have right there the terms of what you later explore of uh, that disembodied thing, that uh, idea of two ways of looking at things, the cutting down into little parts or looking at the whole, uh, yes. that's, uh, that's a big theme. Yes, it is, yes. I, in a way, my, the theme of my, my, my work has always been anti-reductionist. I've always been puzzled all my life by the notion that things were mere this or just that or only anything else, and that uh, is indeed a procedure that one is right to be suspicious of, as Wittgenstein was fond of remarking. Nothing can ever be reduced to anything other than what it is. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, and indeed, I, I, what, what intrigued me was that in writing about literature, I was constantly fighting with language because in trying to make explicit the problem, language was always leading me back to everyday meanings, whereas I was trying to get beyond them to something that our language doesn't normally seem to encompass. And I was sitting one day in college at lunch with a colleague who was a great sinologist, and he said, oh, I understand what you mean, the concepts you're striving for exist in Chinese, but they don't exist in English. <laughs> I thought that was very interesting, and I started to, to study uh, in a very amateurish way uh, Oriental literature. Um, and was relieved to find that, yes, indeed, these concepts did exist there. And then when I got to um, the Maudsley Hospital and the Institute of Psychiatry in London, where, where I was working, I, I was very fortunate to come across the work of a colleague, John Cutting, who'd just written a famous classic book now uh, called The Right Cerebral Hemisphere and Psychiatric Disorders, and I thought I'd go and hear him talk. And I was completely amazed by what I heard him say, because in medical school we've heard virtually nothing about the right hemisphere. It was said to be a bit vague and, and not very intelligent, and, and it sort of uh, was interested mainly in sort of fluffy artistic things, but, but really all the sort of heavy intellectual stuff was done by the left hemisphere. And he was saying something very much more subtle. Uh, he'd spent most of his professional life carefully attending to what happens to people who have something wrong with their right hemisphere, say a, a stroke or a tumor or something that, that uh, disables part of their right hemisphere, and, and noticing what actually happens to their experience of the world and of human beings. And uh, it was fascinating because this related very much to the issues I'd had about um, the way in which we criticize uh, analytically a work of literature because he was saying, although the left hemisphere can understand literal meanings, it can't understand implicit meaning. It doesn't understand metaphor, tone, tone of voice, inflection of the voice, uh, expressions in the face, body language. All this indirect expression uh, is appreciated mainly by the right hemisphere. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's interested in the unique and the particular rather than the generic and the abstract. It has more rich associations with the limbic system and with the um, uh, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which re- regulates our autonomic reactions to experience. And, and so I was thinking, my God, here's half of the brain that we've been writing off, which is actually fundamental to what it is to be a human being. And indeed, it, I later learned a fascinating truth that most people are unaware of, that it is easier to rehabilitate a person who's had a left hemisphere stroke, even though it means that they're going to usually have problems speaking and problems using their right hand. It's it's easier to rehabilitate them than it is to rehabilitate somebody who's had a right hemisphere stroke, because such people just don't understand the world. They don't understand what's being said, and they completely lack insight into their uh, incapacities. They're, as it were, blind to them. And that element of denial is another very important difference between the hemispheres. So I want to just, um, you know, summarize a little bit what I heard. There's a sense of, um, uh, you know, you, you started talking about uh, noticing two ways of thinking and, uh, and, uh, and interested in an embodiment. And in this, uh, you find uh, uh, an embodiment of how these two ways of thinking are, correspond to the two hemispheres. And uh, in a way, even though the right hemisphere is one that in our culture we pay less attention to, it is in many ways a primary source of how we function effectively because this is how we grasp a situation as a whole, as opposed to, in a way, the details of it. That, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, the only, the only thing I would change there is that I think you're, you're dead right to talk about two ways of thinking in one sense, because it's certainly not about thinking versus feeling. It's about um, an unsophisticated mechanical way of thinking versus a much more complex um, a dynamic uh, way of thinking. In fact, it's the sort of dialectical way of thinking that we find in the philosophy of Hegel and his contemporaries. So it is about two ways of thinking, but more than that, it's about two ways of being in the world, if one can use that expression. Mm-hmm. It's about thinking or feeling or any of these things primarily. It's about a whole disposition of the human being towards other beings and towards the world at large. Mm-hmm. So, so two ways of um, uh, being in relationship with the world, and uh, not just in relationship in a passive way, but That's understanding right. the world and interacting with the world. In fact, one of the differences is that the right hemisphere understands that there are these constant, complex, reverberative interactions, whereas the left hemisphere tends to see linear uh, uh, systematic ways of thinking, such as, you know, I push object A, which hits object B, and so forth. So it has a sort of <laughs> a, a, a sort of uh, Newtonian idea about how, think, how we interact with the world, whereas the right hemisphere's way of thinking would, if you want to carry on the, the um, simile from physics, would be more in keeping with the sort of Copenhagen-like interpretation of the material world. Yeah. So, so um, uh, something that's going to be more complex. Complex, yes. And less certain. This is very important. The left hemisphere, I believe, has evolved in order to enable us to have quick, precise interactions which enable us to feed and manipulate things. In other words, 
to catch prey, pick up uh, seed, uh, pick up a twig to build a nest, uh, grasp hold of something and build. So in order to do manipulative interactions with the world, we need a sort of precision. But in fact, that precision is illusory. It doesn't actually exist. Nothing is as clear or black and white as the left hemisphere likes to see it. And it's the right hemisphere that's much more at home with um, things that are only partially expressed, which are um, perhaps contradictory in nature, because after all, um, often a thing and its opposite may coexist and be equally true, an idea that the left hemisphere struggles with, that the right hemisphere is at home with. So in a way it's... it's very uh, important in dealing with uh, patients and with the human psyche, um, not to get into this uh, idea that I'm sure um, all your listeners will be familiar with, of sort of cutting off the things that don't cohere with the rather um, uh, simple idea we have of ourselves uh, and not, in fact, integrating things that may at first glance seem unwelcome into one's idea of oneself and of others. Yeah, yeah, so, so a sense of um, uh, being able to get a sense of the situation as a whole. A sense Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we, 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 we believe, because when we think about it consciously, we think we must have construed the world by understanding one little bit and another and putting them together. But in fact, uh, the easy way to demonstrate that that can't, can't in fact be the case. We, we have a shot at the whole and we refine that first shot by further feedback, if you like, from, from the environment. But we, 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 we see it whole and, and then are guided to look at certain areas of interest um, in detail later. Uh, but in, in our in our attempt to understand what's going on, when we reflect on it, we, we use that kind of ways and we think we built it up from pieces, which is just not the case. Yeah. So, as I listen to you express this, um, you know, part of the question is, of course, in a way, how does this apply to what we do? But I would like to maybe put the question not so much in terms of professional life and patients, but even in a personal life, uh, certainly for me, the way I relate to this is a sense that um, it's a validation of that part of me uh, that is more intuitive or that wants to uh, have a feel of a situation, have a sense of it, uh, versus, say, the um, criticism that the only way to apprehend truth and reality is to have that linear logic. Yes, I certainly, and one of the things that I hope would be an outcome of my book is to help people to understand that um, it's only one half of one's brain, the left hemisphere, and indeed the half that literally sees less and understands less. It's only according to the left hemisphere that there is a truth which is achieved by that kind of logical analysis. There is, of course, value to such analysis. I'm not in the business of trying to discredit either the ideas of clarity or rational thinking. They're extraordinarily important. But they aren't ultimately the way of uh, arriving at the truth. They can, they're helpful servants. They're not uh, good masters. And uh, I think my message is that the right hemisphere uh, is both the one that grounds our experience and the one that ultimately helps us make sense of it. It's it sends things off, if you like, to the left hemisphere for intermediary processing, which can be very useful. It unpacks the implicit and helps us see more of what's there. But it, the left hemisphere on its own can't understand things. It can't 
relate them to the whole picture. So that one needs the right hemisphere. And as you know, it's, it's the thesis that I unfold in the second part of my book. It's a book's in two halves. The first part on neuropsychology and philosophy, really, and the second part, a uh, history of, of our culture, mm-hmm. and looking at the main movements in the history of ideas through the lens of what we've learnt about uh, ourselves through through this differentiation, differentiation between the left and the right hemispheres. It's my contention that in the in the current age, we rely much too much on left hemisphere forms of analysis only, and that is you know dangerous because one only sees part of the truth and one is not aware of the things that one is not seeing. In other words, there are unknown unknowns that are very important. And if we were uh, more willing to open ourselves to the right hemisphere's way of understanding things and to be less uh, dogmatic and less certain about the things that our left hemisphere tells us, we'd be wiser human beings. Yeah. So so uh, we're not talking about shifting from one to the other, but we're talking about expanding uh, and uh, and and uh, living more uh, with that um, understanding that comes from the right hemisphere and interacting with that perspective. That's right. It's not about um, preferring and you know uh, somehow um, disapproving the left hemisphere. They don't need to disapprove of the left hemisphere when it thinks it knows everything. <laughs> um, and so it's about partnership. We need both hemispheres. We need to be able to use them both flexibly. And people who are able to do this are people who are best able to understand life and to make uh, wise judgments. This used to be thought of as the the aim of of education and the ultimate goal of the human being was to get what was known as reason or judgment, which was not mere rationality. It wasn't the kind of mechanical reasoning of the kind that a computer does. It was more like um, what Aristotle calls phronesis, which is a kind of wise blending of one's capacity to reason with the fruits of experience. And I'm afraid that that part, the fruits of experience, is... Uh, consistently undermined in, in the way we, we approach uh, the world nowadays. We think we can account for everything using algorithms, but actually we can't. Right, right. You know, that's, uh, the algorithm is only reflecting how much of ex- how much the basis of experience is. Uh, yes. It, 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 again, it's a, a, a rough and ready sort of tool that works well at a sort of intermediary level, but it will not allow one to get beyond it. Um, The difficulty with this kind of thinking is that it allows one to be very mediocre, but it doesn't allow one to get beyond (laughs) that. Um, So the drive always to operationalize everything from the interaction with between a therapist and a patient to the way a judge um, uh, makes a judgment in a case. Uh, the, the tendency to try and uh, give um, what, what are called guidelines and, 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 and are really, in fact, tramlines um, is not helpful. Uh, it's all going to be about the individual uh, therapist with that individual patient, and it's going to be about an interaction, which is a relationship, the important thing there, rather than the gathering of information or the imparting of information that, that of course, goes on as a, a sort of secondary activity, but it's not the core of what happens. Right. And it's not the core of what happens in any sophisticated area of life uh, for uh, a 
teacher, for a doctor, for a lawyer, for uh, you know, or for that matter, for a, for, a, for a librarian or a potter or or a social worker or whatever. So we, we all need to be re-sophisticating our idea of what a human being is and what the world on which we live is. It's not just a heap of resource for us to exploit. So, so, so in other words, one way to, to apply this to our work in um, professional work in psychotherapy is not to think of it in terms of recipes or methods or approaches that uh, would come from it, but a sense of um, uh, putting our focus and appreciation on um, the process, on uh, what happens as a result of the very specific interaction that we have between therapist and client, and looking at it in terms of um, what you know, the implicit process that, that's there. Yes, I, I, I don't decry all models, of course. They're useful tools. Uh, once again, they're useful at the sort of middle level. Um, the simplest way of explaining this is by analogy with a, with, a, with a performing musician. One is first attracted to a piece and wants to play it because of the whole thing and one's relationship with it. But if one's going to play it, one then needs to spend many hours in analysis or taking it apart, practicing this little passage over and over again, looking at the enharmonic shifts and so forth. And all that is terribly useful. But at the end of the day, when you come to perform, you've got to have that all completely out of your mind. Otherwise, you'll give an absolutely frightful performance. And the same is true of Nutatis Mutandis has many, many areas of life, including um, the area of therapy. It's useful to have a repertoire of techniques at one's fingertips that one has acquaintance with and one is at times practiced. But one needs to be much more flexible, alert, intuitive, receptive when one's actually uh, in, the, in the business of uh, the consulting room. So, so we get to uh, essentially Zen and the art of archery. Yes, it's very like that, I think. But, I mean, all this is there in, in, in Oriental wisdom. Uh, what I've tried to do in my book is show by looking the other way in huge technical detail at, at the brain what science can tell us, which is actually very much the same message, I think. And it's interesting to me also that the process of philosophy in our science philosophy is often thought of as an analytic process. And for some philosophers, that's all it ever is. But... Uh, uh, of course, that, that can lead to certain perceptions, but that, um, increasingly philosophers have come to the conclusion that that leads to a dead end. And most of the great philosophers of the last hundred years, despite being trained in that, that method, have ended up saying, you know, at the end of their lives, really, that poetry is more helpful than analytic philosophy. <laughs> and that was certainly a conclusion of Heidegger's. It was also the conclusion of Wittgenstein's. And one can see this process in others, in, in Hegel and Schopenhauer and in Nietzsche. So uh, some of our Western philosophers um, and much of the tradition of Taoism and of Zen uh, come together in, in, in this and come together, interestingly, with modern physics and, uh, I would say, with the findings of neuroscience. The trouble is that curiosity and biology... Um, we're a bit lagging behind, I would say, in the general culture of, of, the, of the life sciences. In the non-life sciences, such as physics, they, they gave up on a mechanical dead universe a very long time ago. But curiously, in the life, so-called life sciences, a lot of people practice um, a way of thinking which is reductionist and mechanistic. It's a bit of a, a paradox, actually. 
It is, and at the same time, it is strange to see how, for instance, if people, um, you know, when you go to a hematologist and they study the blood, the blood actually doesn't exist in and of itself, but it's everything else that's happening in the body. Well, yes, and, uh, you know, when one talks about the brain, one ought to sort of mention that, it, you know, when one uses the word brain, one's actually dealing with probably the brain and the body together, because much of what the brain is dealing with is also going on in the heart and the gut and, and so on. So, yes, we and our memories and our consciousness are no doubt not confined just to the brain. Mm -hmm. So, as we come to the end of this conversation, is there something that you would want to say to conclude? Well, um, I suppose there's a parallel. People often say to me, um, so what are we to do about it, you know, in, in a kind of anxious way? And um, I, I think that's not a very helpful approach. I think it's um, the way we get ourselves into all kinds of messes, because then experts pop up saying the eight things we need to do to save the planet are. And this is really just a, a way of <laughs> satisfying the, the left hemisphere, which is not really listening to the full story and seeing that it's about a completely different view. But how can I hang on to the current paradigm and by sticking a plaster on here the plaster? <laughs> And make it work. As a therapist and as a doctor, um, and speaking to uh, colleagues, I would say we all know there's no good telling people. You, you may be able to see it the very first time you meet them. There are certain things that's very important for them to stop doing, and certain things that would be obvious if they started doing. It's no good telling them that. You're in the business of raising awareness, and you, only when they get to see the things that you can see, um, then they will start to change. So I'm in the business of raising awareness, and so what I would say is, you know, I'm here to encourage people, um, and if they want to read more about it, uh, to, to have a glance at my book, but the thesis of it essentially is that we are being sold a very reduced version of ourselves and the world. And that this is not the most sophisticated or intelligent way of thinking about the world. Quite the opposite. It is, in fact, a, a fiction, an illusory fiction, that is bred by a part of the brain that's mainly interested in grabbing things. Uh, and uh, nothing against grabbing things. We all need to get food and build houses, and indeed we wouldn't have a civilization without it. But it's only part of the story. And you know, the, the thing I like is, is, is the phrase that I... I picked up only after I'd written the book, but uh, I um, discovered that Einstein said uh, that um, whereas uh, you know, reason is a, a faithful servant, intuition is a precious gift, and that we live in a world that has um, uh, lauded uh, the master, uh, the servant, but has forgotten the gift. And I think that's the world we, we are now sadly inhabiting. So, so really, essentially, it's turning uh, established wisdom on its head, and um, and talking about um, the idea that you know actually you know which one is the servant and which one is the master, and uh, you can actually expand your world by uh, paying attention to that other way of interacting with the world. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. Thanks, Ian. Well, thank you very much, sir. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. But uh, I um, discovered that Einstein said uh, that um, whereas uh, you know, reason is a, a faithful servant, intuition is a precious gift, 
um, that we live in a world that has um, uh, lauded uh, the master, the, the servant, but has forgotten the gift. And I think that's the world we, we are now sadly inhabiting. So, so really, essentially, it's turning uh, established wisdom on its head, and um, and talking about um, the idea that you know actually you know which one is the servant and which one is the master, and uh, you can actually expand your world by uh, paying attention to that other way of interacting with the world. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. Thanks, Ian. Well, thank you very much, sir. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.